Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's August the 26th on the West Coast. Uh, Northern California, San Francisco, the heart of the reasonable universe, uh, at least from the point of view of many San Franciscans like myself. But the news today, as so often, perhaps over the last few centuries, is, is, is rather unreasonable when it comes to the progress of reason. Um, Afghanistan, as so often over the last couple of weeks, is stealing the headlines explosions outside Kabul airport uh, by the unreasonable, the anti-Americans or those committed to some sort of um, medieval idyll. Um, those are in the headlines. Lots of violence, unreasonable uh, for many of us. Uh, we see from the Wall Street Journal that um, the Hikani network is rising to power, uh, an association uh, which in some ways don't seem to be that different from Al-Qaeda and ISIS who are also coming to power. It's not just in Afghanistan, though, that the forces of unreason seem to be um, dominating uh, the conversation. Uh, in the United States, the coronavirus uh, epidemic is back up. And that's because, of course, um, of people like Governor DeSantis of Florida, who seems to be against science. The problem in America is, as the, SD, uh, as the CDC director has suggested, uh, we have a pandemic of the, vac of the unvaccinated, of people who are rejecting science. Um, another headline today from the New York Times is that Texas is clearing a path to the end of Roe versus Wade, perhaps an unreasonable attack on women's right to uh, abortion. And uh, uh, even more absurd, one of the other strange headlines today is that the baby originally photographed in a Nirvana album, uh, Nevermind, is suing Nirvana now for engaging in child pornography. Then there's a lot of bad thinking out there. Um, uh, a lot of bad thinking, perhaps for good people. And my guest today on the show is the co-author of an interesting new book, When Bad Thinking Happens to Good People, uh, How Philosophy Can Save Us from Ourselves. He's um, a professor of philosophy, of course, at uh, the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and he's speaking to us from Madison. Um, Stephen... Uh, Nadler, uh, I'm not going to call you um, Stevie, Stephen, and you say that only your family members call you Stephen when they're angry with you, so I'll call you Steve. Um, your book, Steve, uh, is a really interesting, provocative read. Uh, to be fair, you don't talk a lot about the Taliban, uh, but would you include them um, as bad thinkers? We would include as bad thinkers anybody whose lives are governed by superstitious and irrational beliefs. Um, I'm not going to uh, attack any particular religion, but I do think that to the extent that a person both lives their life 
according to some irrational beliefs and more importantly to the extent that they try to impose those beliefs and that way of living upon others uh, absolutely this is a, a clear example of bad thinking or irrationality um what uh, unfortunately uh, i uh, i tried to get some taliban members uh, on, on the show today but they weren't available um what they're would you busy say right now i think <laughs> yeah i think they're very busy what, what um what would you say to them about their attempts to uh to return Afghanistan to a pre-scientific, pre-rational, pre-modern age? What would your argument be as a philosopher? And what's the argument in the book? The argument in the book is essentially that we are experiencing now, and we have been, I think, for some time, um, what I believe is a pandemic. Uh, and I'm not talking about the medical pandemic of COVID, um, but the pandemic of irrationality and bad thinking which, you know, as bad as the COVID pandemic is, and it's cost countless lives, I think there's something um, even more dangerous with the pandemic of bad thinking or rationality insofar as it feeds the medical crisis we're facing. The people who are against mask mandates because of some misguided notion that it uh, it's a violation of their freedom. The people who oppose vaccinations uh, and refuse to get vaccinated because of some false and misguided beliefs that they have about the dangers of vaccination. Um, these are, are truly pernicious uh, states of mind. And I would say to these people, uh, I would say to the Taliban, um, look, you're, you're free in some, in some areas, you're free to believe whatever you want, as long as you don't try to impose those beliefs upon others. Well, Unless but isn't have... that the nature of things, Steve, that everyone is trying to impose? Well, every political organization, at least, is imposing their, um, their vision, their ideals, their realities on others, whether they're democratic or otherwise. You've called this, um, this bad thinking a, 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 a voracious contagion, uh, you treat it as a virus. Is it unique to our time? One of the things that struck me when I was reading your book is that this stuff has come up many times before in the past, perhaps most brilliantly dealt with um, by Voltaire in his great satirical work, Candide. Philosophers have always been angry, especially enlightened philosophers, about the irrationality of man. What's different about our current predicament? Well, I think you're absolutely right. There's always been bad thinking and irrationality. And we can go back to uh, the Middle Ages and before. Um, what, what seems especially troubling now is a number of things. First of all, we seem to be approaching uh, epidemic proportions of, of bad thinking. But also the technology that we have today allows for competing sources of information. Um, and people seem to take these competing sources of information all at face value. So, so many of the people who are opposed to vaccination seem to be relying not on uh, expert medical advice, uh, not even on serious studies, but what they happen to come across on the internet. This is a really dangerous way to inform yourself. Um, I, I think, as you said, people have always and continue to try to impose their beliefs on others. As a philosopher, what we're against is just that, imposing your belief on others. It's perfectly acceptable, in fact, desirable to try to persuade others um, engage in conversation and rational discourse. And if you succeed through the force of reason, 
to get others to believe along with you, that's great, you know, wonderful. As long as other people have the chance to examine both what it is you're asking them to believe and the reasons for which you're giving, asking them to believe them. Uh, I don't see the Taliban doing that very well, nor do I see Republican governors in the United States doing that very well. They're, these these policies that they have um, are being imposed on people independently of any rational consideration of the medical evidence uh, that uh, that points towards mask and vaccination. And so, I, it's, and again, it's not only just this increased technology, but um, for some reason, um, the cynicism and self-servingness of politicians exacerbates um, the ways in which these um, ideas get spread. Just think of the way in which Fox News and Trump and other media outlets who have followed him were so successfully able to manipulate people uh, in irrational ways. And I think there's, as technology advances, as there are more sources of information, the internet, um, and however those podcasts, however people get their information, um, the danger has multiplied in the Steve, ways in which- Steve um, mentioned earlier, and this is obviously very serious. I, I don't mean to make any levity out of it. The, the bombs uh, in, in, in Kabul were suicide bombs. And there's another kind of suicidal impulse it would seem associated with bad thinking. Uh, climate denial, climate change denial is another example of bad thinking, perhaps the worst kind of uh, bad thinking that you bring up in your book. It's also a form of collective suicide. Um, what What is, is there a an epistemological connection between uh, borrowing or, or, or sort of uh, borrowing a Nietzschean term, uh, our will to suicide um, and bad thinking? Well, the difference between the suicide bombers you find among ISIS uh, followers is that they are, are gauging in suicidal behavior, fully understanding that that's what they're doing. Um, <laughs> I suppose it, you could say it's an informed choice they're making. Um, the collective oh, they do think that they that, that they'll get a free ticket to right. uh, to heaven. On right. Once, there is a, a deeply superstitious belief behind it. Um, the the issue with climate change is, uh, I, I think, people either they're intentionally overlooking the clear evidence that points to what we're doing to our planet, um, and so they they're under no illusion. They think they think that it's not really a suicidal move. They think that this is in our own best interest, or they recognize that yes, eventually this will destroy the planet and our societies. But their focus is is on immediate gratification now, uh, the immediate what they perceive to be the immediate economic uh, factors, and so um, they tend to uh, overlook it. It's a case of what we in the book call uh, a kind of weakness, epistemological weakness where you really act contrary to your better stubbornness judgment. you call it epistemic stubbornness yes it's part of epistemic stubbornness epistemic epistemic stubbornness occurs when people refuse to tailor their beliefs to the evidence and so the beliefs they acquire are acquired in an irrational way they believe things simply because they want to believe them whether or not there's evidence in favor of those beliefs but the stubbornness comes in when they refuse to give up these beliefs in the face of clear evidence that the beliefs are false and the kind of weakness I'm talking about occurs when somebody knows very well what the right thing to do is, and yet acts contrary to that. Do, the do they, though, Steve? There was an interesting um, 
Interesting um, remark by Barack Obama in which he was comparing Trump and the Trump supporters' uh, support for the the idea of the fixed election to the O.J. uh, Simpson acquittal within the African-American community. Um, Obama said uh, when it came to the O.J. Simpson acquittal from from African-Americans, uh, they supported it. They knew it was wrong, but it felt good. Right. Is the same true in terms of um, supporting some of the more outrageous claims of Trump? That most people have a degree of epistemic common sense, but uh, their passions overcome those. I think that's a good question, and I would divide these people into two groups. Uh, What's referred to as Trump's base, I think these people do honestly, perhaps, uh, I'm afraid, believe that Trump won the election and that some kind of deep state stole the election from them. So in this case, they would not be acting against their better judgment. It's their better judge. It's their judgments that I think have been messed up. Um, On the other hand, take all of the uh, Republicans in Congress who continue to insist that the election was stolen, that uh, Trump uh, deserves and is qualified to be president. Uh, I'm convinced, uh, of course, I I don't have any deep insight into what's going on in their minds, but I'm convinced that these people know exactly what they're doing. Um, They know that Trump has no qualifications whatsoever. They know that Trump lost the election. And yet, for the sake of self-serving political success, uh, they are willing to mislead others. These are the people who I think are acting contrary. Well, they, I'd say acting contrary to their bad judgment. They're acting contrary to what they truly know, but maybe what they truly know has been overruled by some political judgment. And so they're acting perfectly consistently with what they take their better political judgment to be, which happens to be contrary to what any reasonable person would uh, believe or demand. Steve, I, I want to come back to politics um, in a few minutes. Uh, but let's return to Afghanistan for the moment. Um, there's a there's a reference to Afghanistan in your book. Um, that's a kind of interesting one in terms of a model for good thinking as opposed to bad thinking. Uh, there was a, an op-ed in the in the Post. Uh, I think it was today about um, Sherlock Holmes and Winston Churchill uh, offering uh, some cautionary tales on. Uh, on Afghanistan, um, and I'm quoting, uh, it's from David Von Drell, I learned of a place called Afghanistan, as many Americans do, by reading one of the most famous opening chapters in literary history. I was 11 years old, and my book introduced a young English doctor um, sent to an outpost of the empire. He was hurried along, uh, hurried ahead to the front lines of a persistent war. This, of course, was from the 19th century. He united with his assigned unit in Kandahar, and nearly died in combat when his shoulder was shattered by a bullet. Recuperating back in London, seeking an affordable apartment, he met a potential roommate, a strange fellow, among whose first words were him were, "Uh, you have been in Afghanistan, I perceive. Thus, Dr. Watson met Sherlock Holmes. Um, Your book uh, refers in in some ways to... uh, Holmesian wisdom or Holmesian logic uh, as a model for good thinking. Explain what that means. There, we review in the book various ways in which you can r- rationally come to belief. 
Um, Holmes himself preferred deductive reasoning, whereby from some absolutely certain premises or premises that have been established with some degree of certainty, you simply draw a conclusion. That's the kind of argument that we do uh, most clearly in mathematics. Um, but in this case, uh, Holmes can deduce from the facts that he sees and from his knowledge of the uh, current uh, politics and geopolitics of England at the time that his bedfellow must have been in Afghanistan. It's a kind of what philosophers call a priori reasoning, where from some premises you move rationally to the conclusion that's implied by the premises. And this is a perfectly good way of justifying beliefs. The other way in which you could do go about justifying your beliefs is not a priori in a purely deductive manner, but uh, empirically by examining the evidence, the uh, factual evidence at hand, uh, and generalizing over it and drawing a conclusion, uh, but recognizing at the same time that your conclusion is only based on the empirical or experiential evidence that you've had. And so you have to be open to the possibility that further experiences will falsify whatever belief you derive from the experiences you've had so far. So these are the uh, deductive and inductive ways of, of um, justifying a belief. Similarly, you, was, there's what we call abduction, where you have a set of facts and you're looking for uh, a reasonable or plausible explanation for those facts. For example, in, in astronomical science, you see the, the fluttering of the light of a distant star and so you conclude that the best explanation for the fluttering of that light is that there's a planet orbiting that star. You don't see the planet. You don't deduce, logically deduce the existence of the planet, but it's the best explanation you have for why the light you are perceiving has fluttered uh, in a regular and periodic way. Uh, let's return to politics. Uh, you made a couple of rather disparaging remarks about politicians particularly those on the right. But generally, my sense, perhaps, Steve, is as a philosopher, you're not a great fan of politics. Towards the end of your book on good thinking, um, you talk, of course, as so many philosophers have done and will always do, about Socrates uh, and Plato, but particularly Socrates as a model of a good thinker. Um, but Plato, of course, was very hostile to uh, politics and his book, The Republic, invented the idea of a philosopher king who ruled over uh, politicians or any kind of uh, uh, ambivalence. To what extent should you, as a as a, as a philosopher, um, recognize the ambivalence of politics? The fact that politics perhaps lies outside uh, the formal boundaries of philosophy. Part of Plato's problem with politics, and he had the same problem with uh, the dramatic arts, is that it seems to necessarily involve lying. That in order to be a successful actor on the stage, for example, you have to present false appearances. And the same thing seems to be the case in politics uh, today. Uh, so it, this is, I don't think this is endemic to politics itself. I think you, if you can somehow arrive at an honest, open, transparent political system where policies are made not based on the self-interest of the politicians, but in an informed way by an understanding of the issues and the possible solutions. So I think, 
I, I, I'm not the anti-democrat that Plato was, I, far from it. I believe that democracy is our best hope for a healthy politics. But the kind of distrust of expertise, the constant um, using the epithet elitist in a pejorative way, this strikes me as very dangerous. Um, I do agree with Plato that the people I want to see in political power, they should be elites. They should be better than the run of most people. They should be well-educated. They should have an expert grasp of social, political, economic, environmental, scientific problems so that when they come to policies, to making policies, these are policies are well-informed and directly address not the self-serving interests of the politicians, but the issues that face that we face every day in our society. So I'm not against politics per se. What I'm against is a deceptive politics that is really based in this country these days uh, in the interests of the, of the wealthy and the uh, careers of the politicians. I think Plato was right. We wouldn't be much better off if the people who are governing us were philosophically astute and intellectually and analytically uh, skilled. Does it ever worry you, Steve, that your notion of truth and your notion of the good seem always to be the same? Um, no. <laughs> well, so if, I'm not, if you're referring to the, the notion that- Well, you, you seem to be implying, well, if, if only we could get to the truth, then we would reform capitalism, make things fairer, establish a, a better world, which in some ways I agree with. But why, why bring in truth here? Why sacrifice philosophy at that altar? I don't think of it as a sacrifice of philosophy. I think of it as the crowning of philosophy. Um, if part of if the reason why you're asking this is because of the, the prevalence in many humanities dis disciplines of doing away with truth, uh, I would say that philosophy is the one discipline where truth still remains vitally important. Um, and I, I have to confess, I believe there are truths. I think there are objective truths about things. It is objective, tr objectively true that the continued burning of fossil fuels will eventually end in the destruction, not just of our society, but life as we know it on this planet. It is an objective truth that uh, Donald Trump lost the election that the election was fair. It's been confirmed by the evidence. So I'm not willing to give up truth in the name of some um, relativistic, um, open-ended conversation. I think the conversation is important, but it has to be made in the service of discovering truths when there are. I mean, of course, there are lots of areas in which there is no such thing as the, the objective truth. Uh, matters of aesthetic taste. There, we should agree to disagree. Some people like eggplant, other people hate eggplant. There's no truth of the matter about whether eggplant is good or not. But in some domains, in science, and I think as well, in, in moral matters especially, and this is important for politics, we want our politicians to have um, a grasp of moral truths. I think truth is a very important value and should not be disposed of so easily. Um, we, you know, this defense of truth is one that's come up many times in the show. We had Jonathan Rao, uh, more of a conservative thinker, but I think very much in your camp when it comes to uh, truth. He wrote The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth. Um, what would you, though, make of the alternative philosophical tradition of, 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 of perhaps people like Nietzsche who argue that philosophy itself is a way of 
seeking power and that truth um, is just another device to establish power. It's not, it's not something that can easily be dismissed. Um, we do know, I mean, we have seen that claims to truth have been used to justify people's pursuit of power and the continued maintenance of power. Um, I don't share Nietzsche's fear of philosophy as an inquiry into what's true, what's morally true, what's metaphysically true. Um, and I certainly don't have any worries about science being the pursuit of what is true in the natural world. Um, so I, I'm not a Nietzschean when it comes to that. But I would say that my commitment to philosophy as the pursuit of truth in certain domains shouldn't be seen as a conservative or reactionary uh, position. I think that progressive politics itself requires um, an understanding of what truth is um, as we try to move society to a more just and equitable situation um, without some grasp of what's true, what's true with about justice. Are, are, are there are any truths that you wish weren't true? Um, I have to say I wasn't prepared for that question. Um, uh, it, yeah, sure. Here's a truth. It's true that Donald Trump is likely to be the next Republican nominee. I wish that were not true. Um, I, it's true that the Taliban have taken over. I mean, these are empirical truths. I don't think that's really what you're asking. Well, am I, yeah, you know, I'm not asking that. <laughs> yeah. A moral truth, something that you wish wasn't true, but is true. Um, I don't think I have a... Or really a philosophical answer. truth. Um, Is there anything about philosophy that disappoints you? Well, well, no, no. Um, there is something about the philosophical profession that I often find disappointing, and that is that philosophers are often satisfied to uh, stay removed from the world. I, I do wish, uh, this is not really answering your question, but I do wish that philosophy as a discipline was a more engaged discipline in helping solve the problems of the world. Now, this is mainly true, I think, in the United States. What's, what's impressive about philosophy in Britain, in France, in the Netherlands, in Germany, and elsewhere, is that philosophers are public figures. They're intellectuals who take part in public debates. They're on television. They're on the radio. Um, I think the United States is only now just starting to catch up with that, especially with the a proliferation of podcasts. But I do wish philosophy as a discipline um, had a higher public profile. And I don't, I don't think that's the fault only of philosophers. I think uh, the media rarely turns to philosophers for insights into the state of the world. After 9-11, you saw uh, the New York Times and other media outlets always turn to journalists, historians, even poets and novelists for their insights as to the, uh, the tragedy of 9-11. But you rarely saw them going to philosophers uh, for who some... Who would be an example of an American philosopher who CNN or Fox should have interviewed after 9-11 or today uh, after this latest uh, bombing at Kabul airport? Would it be a highly politicized philosopher like Chomsky or who isn't really even a philosopher? Are there pure philosophers, you think, whose voices need to be heard in America? Apart I from do. your own, of course, and your... Co-author Larry Shapiro. Um, I think Martha Nussbaum has done very well as a public intellectual with many things to say. I mean, her, her training was originally in classics and ancient philosophy, but she's become one of our most articulate or, or Author on Aristotle. I've written a number of books on Aristotle. Right. And on weakness, what we were talking about before. She has a wonderful book called The Fragility of Goodness. 
Um, but um, I think she's been an especially articulate commentator on issues of women's rights, on uh, on politics, on the emotions, and has much. I think she she's a very good example of a philosopher who has entered successfully uh, the realm of public commentator. Um, Charles Taylor, uh, a Canadian philosopher, has also um, made a made a good uh, presence, a very public presence, commenting on on events. Steve, finally, when I was reading your book, it occurred to me that this was only the latest chapter in this ongoing uh, conflict, perhaps, between philosophers and the world itself, beginning with Plato and Socrates, going through Voltaire and the Enlightenment. Uh, one person, I think, who dealt with this wonderfully was, um, was Albert Camus, the author, of course, of The Plague, another metaphorical book about contagion. Uh, he, he came up with the myth of Sisyphus, this idea that we always need to roll that rock up the hill, even if we know we're going to fail. Is there an element of Sisyphean pointlessness about what you you and your philosophy, your fellow philosophers are trying to do to convince human beings to, in terms of your subtitle, save ourselves from ourselves? Uh, my gosh, I hope not. <laughs> um, I think we, you know, as, well, let me back up a bit. Uh, we never pictured ourselves writing a book like this. Uh, my own specialty is the 17th century. I write on Descartes, on Spinoza, and issues uh, of that period. My co-author is a specialist in the philosophy of mind, and he works in philosophical issues around psychology and cognitive science. We never thought we'd be writing a book that so directly engages with the state of the world today. But over the past uh, four or five years, as we've grown more anxious and fearful, not just for the state of our democracy and the fate of our nation, but the fate of the planet, um, we felt that the least we can do, uh, and unfortunately, perhaps the most we could do as philosophers, is to at least find a way of drawing people's attention to this pandemic of irrationality. Um, if I, I think we have to remain optimistic. I, you know, I love reading Camus. Uh, and he himself said, yes, even though uh, life is absurd and um, the absurdity of the world of nature will always be thrown back in our faces, um, he says very famously, well, it doesn't mean you should kill yourself. It means you should move on. You should keep going and find meaning in any way you can. Um, now, you referred earlier to my views on truth. I think there may not be an objective meaning of life. But to the extent that I do believe there are such things as truths, um, and to the extent that I feel that I regard myself as a progressive in politics, I think we can and should try to move ourselves to a better state of affairs. Um, it's, and you know, I think at this point, it's still just a matter of reform, not a matter of revolution. But I'm not willing to give up the ghost and just concede everything is absurd. Well, you're certainly not, and uh, you haven't given up the ghost. Um, Stephen Nadley, co-author of When Bad Thinking Happens to Good People, uh, an act, a philosophical act to make the world a better place. It's an excellent read. It's out, um, formally out next week, but I think it's available now. Uh, it's a Princeton University book. Great read, very accessible and very erudite. Congratulations on the book. Steve, uh, in these strange times, I know you're in your office uh, in Madison, Wisconsin, where you also teach at the university. What else should people be reading to make themselves wiser in addition to your book 
in these strange times? Well, I think you could do no better than to read some of the great philosophers themselves. Uh, I knew yeah. you'd say that, Steve. <laughs> what a surprise. Surprise, um, surprise. So the very first thing I have my students read every time I teach Philosophy 101 and also some other courses is uh, three early dialogues of Plato, the Euthyphro, the Apology, and the Credo, where Plato, uh, through Socrates, explains what it is to live an examined life, what it is to know yourself and to know what you're doing. I could also do no better than to recommend my current favorite, which would be Spinoza. Um, I think Spinoza, one of the things we talk about in the uh, book explain, is- Explain, not everyone will even know who Spinoza, oh, Baruch Spinoza was. Spinoza, Spinoza was uh, a 17th century philosopher of Jewish background, but born and uh, raised in Amsterdam in uh, 1632, died in 1677. He was also, I, I think, perhaps the most original, uh, a radical thinker of the period. Uh, he, he really was, as, as I read him, an atheist, a secularist, and somebody who fought deeply and thoughtfully against uh, superstitious beliefs and the dangers of falling prey to manipulative ecclesiastics in organized religion. Spinoza thought, uh, Spinoza's works are all about freedom, both the, the freedom of the individual, the freedom of their mind uh, as reasonable, rational beings, free from superstition and passions, but also freedom in politics, freedom from being manipulated by uh, whether ecclesiastics or self-serving politicians. So I would suggest people read Plato's early dialogues, the Euthyphro, Apology, and the Credo, and read Spinoza's Ethics. It's a difficult work. Uh, and once you start reading it, you'll become obsessed like I have. Um, and it, it'll, you'll, I think it's possible today to be a Spinozist. Well, uh, that, those are your, our marching orders, our, our after-class reading from uh, Stephen Nadler, the author of When Bad Thinking Happens to Good People. My philosopher king for the day. Steve, lovely to talk to you. Congratulations on the book. Keep well, keep thinking, keep correcting uh, mankind. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thanks for having me on.